gun shop accuses an ATF inspector of wrongdoing. Plus, Reno May discusses his new lawsuit against the California handgun poster. That and more on this episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I made the devil run. I gave him poison just for fun. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Gutowski. I'm also the founder of TheReload.com, where you can head over and pick up a membership today if you want to support our sober, serious approach to firearms journalism and analysis, um, or if you want to get this podcast a day early or even be on the podcast, just go ahead and reach out. We love having members on, do a member segment, get to know you guys a little bit better. But um, this week, we are looking at a new case out of California, a challenge to one of the state's most unique laws, uh, restrictions that they have in place, one that is now uh, starting to spread, actually, a little bit to other states. New York has adopted uh, some of the same uh, provisions of this law. Uh, Maryland has has one as well. But the, the uh, sort of idea for this policy comes from California, where they also still have the most restrictive version of it. And today we have a guest with us who's actually challenging uh, the, the California handgun roster, is what it's called. It's essentially uh, a list of guns you uh, are allowed to own in California uh, and everything else you are not. So we have um, Reno May with us here. Uh, you guys may know him from his YouTube channel, but he is also a a plaintiff in this new case against this California law. Welcome to the show, Reno. Thank you so much for for joining us. Thank you for having me on. This is a really cool opportunity. I really like your work, and uh, it's kind of cool to be uh, a part of this. Absolutely. I appreciate you coming on. Uh, can you give people just a little more background about yourself? If, if they haven't heard of you, you have <laughs> obviously become fairly popular uh, on on YouTube, but uh, there may be people perhaps in the DC square who who uh, read our work or listen to this podcast that aren't aware of you. Yeah, um, so my name is Reno May. I am a YouTuber based out of the state of California. Um, this kind of all started when I was working at a gun store. Um, we had some slow periods and there was a lot of changing of laws in the state of California. And rather than field 40 phone calls a day, we decided, hey, let's just uh, do one take real good, put it up on YouTube. That way we can direct people there. Um, the gun store ended up closing in early 2018, and I uh, I decided to pick it back up when a lot of laws started changing in 2019, I believe, with how to purchase a firearm. And I figured, oh, you know, I'll just make an update and then just walk away from it. Well, a week later, I was sitting in front of my computer again, and then I did it the next week and the week after that. And it kind of just snowballed into where we are here today, um, really picking up in 2020 when people were many people for the first time were wondering, how do I get a gun? And in the state of California, it's just complicated enough to where if you've never had someone teach you about firearms or didn't have someone to ask about it, it might have been a little bit too intimidating to walk into a gun store and say, hey, I don't know anything at all. Uh, help. Um, so I think a lot of people saw value in that. And that's kind of how it all uh, started taking off. Um, it's yeah. been cool. Yeah. That's interesting. I mean, I, I actually remember watching some of your very early videos. So I've been following mm -hmm. along with uh, with your progression here for a Sweet. while and I've and, uh, been a fan. So, uh, you know, it's it's clearly uh, something that's engaged with a lot of people. A lot of people like the mm -hmm. kinds of videos you make. Uh, it's interesting, too, to hear that story because um, it's it sounds very similar to um, Iraq veteran 8888, who I've you know, mm -hmm. done videos on his channel as well. Nice dude. He's actually yeah. uh, 
uh, Khalibi's the the head of uh, the Georgia chapter Gee, for yeah. GLA now, which but, is super um, cool to see. But yeah, it's sort of similar similar background in, as far as like how you started doing YouTube. You know, mm-hmm. a gun shop trying to explain things to people, yeah. and <laughs> and then uh, it's sort of snowballed from there. Yeah, totally. That's yeah. that's really cool. Um, and now you're getting involved in this in this lawsuit. You know, there's there's uh, that, that's obviously a fairly unique thing to do. Just like, uh, you know, Rack Better in 8888 has, uh, Eric yeah. has gotten involved in that, uh, is more involved as an act- as an activist and working mm-hmm. with, uh, you know, an established gun rights group. Now you are, you're also working with one in this case. Um, mm-hmm. what, what made you decide to get involved in that way? Um, well, being in the state of California, a lot of people ask, um, why don't you just leave? Uh, and you know, maybe at some point I will, but in the time being, I wanted to do as much as possible to try to influence the culture. And this is another route to influence the culture by making things easier and more accessible to people. Uh, I was really inspired by stuff that Iraq veteran has been doing with activism, um, how military arms channel, uh, Mac has been very active with, mm-hmm. uh, legislators and how, um, the team at T-Rex arms, Isaac and Lucas have involved themselves in Tennessee. Um, the CRPA is a great organization. They are the reason that we were able to legally acquire magazines during Freedom Week. Um, and I saw that as a great opportunity. I had reached out to some of the lawyers and just interacted with them here and there with Michelle and Associates, uh, who works with the CRPA very closely. So close that Chuck Michelle, you know, from Michelle and Associates is very high up with the CRPA. Yes, he's the president. And, yes. Yep. <laughs> you know, pretty, pretty up there. Um and the CRPA, some of their lawyers reached out to me asking if I was interested in being a plaintiff. And I thought that was awesome. I really am happy to be a part of this and being able to kind of have some skin in the game when it comes to the actual fight and not just talking about stuff. Yeah, it's interesting uh, that that track record you've described there of uh, sort of the gun tubers becoming real world mm-hmm. activists you're not just yeah. uh, and not, not that you know obviously commentary is a perfectly legitimate form of activism as well mm-hmm. uh, not to put down anyone else who's who's not signing totally. up lawsuits no. or what what have you but yeah. uh, it is interesting to see the evolution of mm-hmm. gun tubers into uh real world activists in you know in a number of different forms as you mentioned there you know yeah the yeah. military arms channel um has has been very vocal in, uh, for instance, uh, NRA reform campaigns or, or uh, moving to alternatives yeah. to the NRA. Uh, you know, the, the gun tuber world has been very uh, vocal in those realms and not just uh, uh, in, in sort of <laughs> supporting causes, but actually getting involved. Yeah. In uh, so I find that that's a really interesting evolution of, of this community. Uh, totally in that way. And so you're a part of that. Now let's talk about the wall in particular, the, what you're challenging mm-hmm. here. California has an unsafe, uh, or is a law against, uh, the yeah, sales of unsafe firearms, right? There's unsafe a firearms. list of not unsafe for sale handguns, which is part of the unsafe handgun act, I believe, um, where mm-hmm. in the state of California, if you want to purchase a handgun from a dealer, so not private party and you are not a cop or one of the ever-growing list of law enforcement uh, departments, 
you can only buy certain handguns. And I want to be very clear, handguns, revolvers. When I say handguns, I'm talking about semi-auto handguns. Um, revolvers, the requirements are a little bit different. But in order to have that firearm be a purchasable firearm that is not unsafe for sale. Sorry, I use a lot of uh, Italian sign language. Um, <laughs> yes, uh, there's a lot of uh, quotation marks going on for those who are watching. <laughs> on YouTube, yes. Yeah. Um, so if you want to purchase a handgun, the only handguns that you have available to purchase are handguns that existed prior to, I believe, March of 2013 many of which were prior to 2007. So if you want a Glock, you are limited to a certain specific models of Generation 3 Glocks, not the ones made in the USA, only the ones made overseas because they're different mm -hmm. models and therefore not approved. Um, and so what, seen, what are some of the features yeah. that they require uh, in order yeah. to, for a handgun to be approved by this list. So I alluded to that kind of in the 2007 and then 2013 changes. In 2007, I believe, was when they started requiring loaded chamber indicators and magazine disconnects on semi-auto handguns. So when you have a round in the chamber, there's a little flag that pops up with writing on it. There is very specific requirements to be a legal chamber-loaded indicator. And it has to say loaded when up with a little red flag. That's how we see it on, I believe, the Smith & Wesson Shield, very common. The Some of the SIG 226 and 220 variants. Um, so basically, when there's a round in the chamber, a little flag pops up, making it very clear that there's a round in the chamber. However, That's interesting, but so it's only that specific kind of loaded chamber indicator? Because obviously, a lot yeah. of guys have mm -hmm. uh, you know, a cutout where you could see if there's brass mm -hmm. in your chamber. There's specific uh, uh, requirements. Yeah. So, you know, on most Glocks, you can see if it's loaded just by kind of peeking in through the side or seeing how the extractor sits. So many firearms do have loaded chamber indicators, but it's not necessarily the right type of loaded chamber indicator. I mean, I have a 1911 here uh, mm -hmm. from Remington and they have, yep. a, you know, a little uh, a hole that allows you to see into the chamber, yep. see whether or not and there's... Uh, that would not be acceptable because uh, it is not a little flag that sticks up. Um, I don't have any currently right here with me to grab and show. And then the other feature, the other big one is the magazine disconnect. So without a magazine inserted into the gun, it won't fire even if there's a round in the chamber, which mm -hmm. there's That's a lot of scenarios. Yeah, there's a lot of scenarios where you could imagine that would be not useful. I imagine many people that have been shooting long enough have shot a gun and the magazine unseats itself or maybe wasn't seated properly. And that could stop you from being able to pull that trigger when you need to. Um, those are the two features that I believe they added in 2007. Then in right. 2013, this became is a much more controversial feature. Yeah, right. this one is the uh, the one that made it impossible or you know, nearly impossible to comply with when they required micro stamping and micro stamping is in essence, they wanted the semi-auto handgun to imprint on the spent casing in two locations, a identifiable marking to that gun that could be traced back to the original purchaser of that firearm. It's now been reduced to only one location. Unfortunately, the technology does not exist on any currently purchasable production firearm. So that's why we're stuck with generation three Glocks because they're not going to add a loaded chamber indicator or a magazine disconnect. And 
the technology for micro stamping does not exist practically on the market. There are firearms that have proven that the technology could be a thing, but it is not reasonably there, possible. Yeah. This is like the brainchild of a single guy, wasn't it? Yeah. I, and I think we've seen some examples where these smart guns or these guns that have the technology just are, they fail. They're just not safe in the well, sense that they don't ever, function well. Outside of this, uh, I forget his name to be yeah. honest with you, but uh, there, there's one person who proposed this tech, this concept of imprinting, uh, you know, a QR code basically on, yeah. on uh, every cartridge that was fired from uh, firearm and this idea is that you could then trace the the uh, casings to specific firearms. I mean, there's a lot of conceptual yeah. issues with this cons with this idea in the first place. I mean, yeah, and in practicality, be, yeah, yeah, and then in re in real life, no one has ever produced even a prototype. I mean, the, this mm -hmm. guy made his own uh, model to demonstrate yeah. that it would imprint, so, you know, something mm -hmm. onto a cartridge, which is not. If you ever fired a gun and you looked at the primer, it, of course, mm -hmm. it has an indentation from the firing pin. And so mm -hmm. in theory, the theory is if you put some sort of QR code <laughs> on there, it, it would leave an indentation. But I mean, I think anyone who understands how primers work and how soft they are mm -hmm. is, would understand why that's not really a super reliable concept. And, and it's uh, yeah, there's a lot of mm -hmm. there's a lot of debate over it. Yeah. Um, and in practicality, now I, I will say. I'm mm -hmm. sorry. Um, in, in for, yeah. Anyone can just take a small little file to it. Um, it could get damaged over time. If someone wanted to commit a crime and take someone's brass that had that micro stamp brass and scatter it around. Um, if the firearm was stolen, if the firearm has changed hands in any way from the original registered owner of it, it doesn't do much. It's the same thing as any stolen firearm that has the serial numbers removed. If they're going to leave the gun at the scene of the crime and they know they're going to potentially or be in possession of a stolen firearm, they're probably not going to want that traceable information trackable back to them and they could easily remove it and defeat this technology. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of critiques of this concept, um, mm -hmm. but California has deemed it viable, uh, yep. which is why this this um, requirement went into place. And uh, yeah, not a single handgun has been approved for new handgun model has been approved mm -hmm. for sale in California since they did that, correct? Yeah, correct. Um, there are the bolt action repeater firearms from Franklin Armory, the AR pistols that made it onto the roster, but those are exempt from that because they're not a semi-auto. Uh, so the mm. requirements are different. Interesting. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, I think another tell with that. Uh, with that, the, the whole debate over micro stamping is that nobody produces a gun that can do this anywhere in the world, including countries yep. which don't allow civilian gun ownership and, and presumably would have a greater uh, desire to try and implement this sort of technology if it were feasible, but mm -hmm. nobody does anyway. Yeah. So it, there's, there's uh, no commercial demand for it. And because of that, there is no commercial supply for it. Yeah, this is, like you mentioned earlier, it's very similar to the smart gun uh, mm -hmm. trend, which is not not implicated by this law, but is another area where people debate these sorts of uh, technologies and uh, why they aren't currently available on the market. Because uh, yeah. obviously what you'll hear from supporters of the micro-stamping requirements are effectively that the industry has um, 
banded together to not produce these uh, because they don't want people to be able to track fired brass or, or what what have you. Yeah, uh, that it's it's really an industry constraint and not uh, mm-hmm. you know a technical constraint. What what do you think about that argument? I think that if the technology was more available, we would see more companies that are in favor of this legislation producing it. Uh, the technology is very expensive to design a specific model solely for the California market. And we are a big part of the firearms market. You know, there's a low percentage of people relative to other states in California that like guns and are interested in firearms, but there's a lot of us. So even that small percentage does have a big buying power. So if the technology was wanted, people would make it. And if it was feasible from a economic standpoint to make it, they would make it. And the technology is not easy to implement in the first place. So I just, I don't see the demand. I think the supply would be very difficult for them to do. And it would be undesirable from pretty much anyone that isn't the lawmakers trying to push this to get it to actually happen. Hmm. And uh, as far as the other argument for the roster goes, which is that uh, it's furthering California's interest in keeping unsafe handguns uh, out of public circulation. What, what do you say to that? I think that if they actually cared about unsafe handguns being restricted and not being on the market, it kind of that argument falls apart when you think about the fact that any handgun on the not unsafe for sale roster is by definition an unsafe handgun because the Glock Gen 3s don't have loaded chamber indicators per the state definition. They don't have a magazine disconnect. They don't have micro stamping, but those are still certainly available to purchase. And the non or the off roster firearms that are considered unsafe for sale can be purchased by law enforcement. Specifically, I believe the LAPD is now switching over to the FN 509 very recently a firearm that's very popular in any other state and is per the state of California's definitions, an unsafe handgun. So they seem to their argument that they want to keep unsafe handguns out of people's hands falls apart. When you look at what they allow to be sold currently and who they allow to buy these unsafe handguns. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I certainly think the police exception kind of undercuts the the whole (laughs) idea, very similar to this argument about, uh, weapons of war that, that we've all heard repeatedly mm-hmm. because all of the assault weapons bans uh, mm-hmm. that have been proposed also have exceptions for law enforcement, which yep. if these are weapons of war, uh, it's quite odd to- Who are they at to, war with? Yeah, equip them uh, for the for law enforcement officers. But And and why does the uh, the horse racing board of California, why do they need unsafe handguns? You know, they were recently added to the list. There's a ever-growing list of departments that I'm confused as far as what law enforcement activities they're doing in the first place and why they specifically need to access unsafe handguns. But so obviously these are not new arguments. Certainly no. this is, these have been critiques since the law was passed. Mm-hmm. Um, and this law has been challenged twice before and upheld by the California Supreme Court and uh, the Ninth Circuit uh, Federal Court of Appeals. Yep. What makes you guys believe that you're going to have a better shot at uh, getting it tossed out this time around? 
Yeah, I believe the Firearms Policy Coalition now currently has a case challenging this same law. And that's awesome. I think that's Reina versus Becerra, R-E-N-N-A. And then I think it was, ah, I can't remember the court case that uh, failed and is just dead at this point. Um, we see it as a potential to win in the new era of Bruin. Um, Heller should have been enough, but the state and the Ninth Circuit was totally fine using the means end argument saying, hey, basically, they want to get rid of these guns because they want it to be safer in California. They were basically able to justify any infringement because the goal in their words was to create a safer environment, essentially. With Bruin, now, I'm not sure anyone can argue that there is a his text, history, and tradition of banning the quintessential defensive firearms, firearms that are used for lawful purposes, there is not much of a history banning the most common, normal firearms in America. And I think Bruin really opens that up. And I'm very hopeful. I've spoken with some of the lawyers, and they are trying their hardest to prepare for the counter arguments, however weak they are going to be. Uh, they have to prepare for those, but we see this as very, very high chances of being successful. Yeah, I mean, I think certainly Bruin changes the landscape quite a bit on this question of whether or not the the law violates the Second Amendment, and it will likely come down to this historical analog test that was set up in Bruin. Uh, and uh, yeah, it, it is hard to imagine uh, that there will be a historical analog to something like the unsafe handgun uh, yeah. roster. And and so, uh, boy, I, I do think you guys have a better chance. However, um, there there was uh, you know a recent ruling from a federal uh, district court in California dealing with uh, San Jose's uh, gun insurance requirements. Yep. Uh, which uh, found that that law, even though it is literally the first of its kind, it just passed, uh, was it this year or was it 2021? Either it might have been yeah, I think it was the this year, uh, just a couple months ago. Yeah. yeah. I think you're right. It was, it was earlier. I think this they, year. they've been talking uh, about it for, yeah. The, but yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. COVID still got me kind of, uh, <laughs> The time is it's 2020 still a strange concept after the <laughs> yeah. pandemic, but yeah. yeah, it's still 2020 basically. <laughs> it's, it's always going to be 2020. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, anyway, you know, it's recently passed. There's no, there hasn't been any sort of you need to buy insurance, uh, especially mm -hmm. some sort of odd liability against criminal action insurance uh, that they've created yeah. in in San Jose. There's a lot of problems with this law, but yeah, uh, the federal uh, judge who's just reviewed it. Uh, the first, you know, the first rung of the federal court system has has determined that it there is a historical analog, and it's uh, surety laws that dealt with someone putting up uh, basically a, a surety against well, you know, carrying their guns in public if they had been accused of being a threat to society, um, you know, so they had to put up a surety if if they were uh, wanted to to carry in case some they caused some sort of harm. Um, and so I think that's the kind of historical analysis that you're going to see from judges who want to uphold these kinds of laws. Uh, how, how do you guys plan to deal with it? I mean, obviously you're not, the, you're not the lawyer. I'm not a lawyer. <laughs> um, you're just one of the plaintiffs, but uh, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm interested in your point of view on, um, 
you know, how you counter those sorts of arguments. Yeah, I believe that was the court case brought up by NAGR uh, that was seeking a preliminary injunction against it, um, and that was denied. So I'm very interested to see how that plays out, especially since, uh, as far as I'm aware, the specifics of how they're going to enforce that and the specifics of what they want from those ordinances. uh, I'm not sure that's all been finalized as of yet. So it's particularly interesting that they were able to... um, get things through that quickly. Uh, so I'm, I'm very much following that case. I think that's very interesting. San Jose is a population of, I think like, uh, or Santa Clara County is, it's a pretty big population in the state of California. I think it's like four or 5 million people. So it affects a lot of people and it could set precedents. Like we were talking earlier, things start in California and seem to migrate out. Um, I know that the lawyers that are working on this case are very aware of that. And I'm sure that they have a plan. Um, I'm not too sure of it. And if I was, I would be somewhat hesitant to reveal those plans. Um, That's fair. Because I'm sure they got their uh, strategies and practices of how to fight it that they may not want shared until it's time to share that. Um, so I don't have a specific answer on that. However, they seem very confident in their ability to win this case. Just to summarize real quick, then, what mm-hmm. you know, obviously the counter argument to your case is going to be that there were, uh, if if you look at it from a certain perspective, if you zoom out mm-hmm. far enough, there were laws against, um, you know, that that sought to restrict un- dangerous and unusual weapons. This is something the Supreme Court has talked about as as one yeah. of the traditions that exist, uh, and I'm sure that's what a lot of this case is the historical analysis is going to focus on. Mm -hmm. Uh, Do you find that there, that there, uh, the historical tradition of restricting dangerous and unusual weapons uh, is a good fit with this unsafe handgun law or like what, what, what's your view on how this plays with traditional regulation of, of guns in America? Yeah, they're certainly going to try to say that the goal of it is to restrict certain types of firearms that are unusual or dangerous, but the guns that they are restricting seem to be no longer the era of Saturday night specials where they were trying to keep guns that would explode uh, or be particularly dangerous to use um, for the user and not be drop safed. But that's no longer the types of firearms that are being restricted by this. They are essentially restricting the most common handguns in America, um, flat out just across the board. And I'm not sure that there has been a law banning the most common firearms used for lawful purposes that would hold and has been upheld. Right. So so the common use for lawful purposes. That's where, that's, um, you know, which was something yeah. that they talked about at length in Heller, of course, mm-hmm. and repeated in Bruin. Um, yeah. that, that's where you see this law being unconstitutional. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think we would both say that all gun laws are unconstitutional, but when we were talking about arguing stuff in the courts, the arguments have to be a little bit more advanced than, uh, screaming the text of the second amendment. Um, but yeah, I think that it's kind of hard to say that the most common handguns in America are dangerous and unusual. And I think that was part of what was argued in Heller is that the handgun is the quintessential defensive weapon used for lawful purposes. And specifically with this, they are banning 
the quintessential defensive firearms that are very commonly used across every other state, barring a few that have similar laws that aren't as extreme. Yeah, and that, that is another point too. California's version of this law does appear to be the most restrictive, mm -hmm. even with the new uh, provisions passed by New York that incorporate yeah. micro stamping requirements. Uh, most of these other states have much longer lists of, or I, I don't I, I, like Maryland, for instance, has a roster, but but mm -hmm. their roster lists out guns that you can't buy, uh, and yeah. presumes everything else is legal. Whereas California does the opposite, and there's only mm -hmm. Uh, I believe about 800 models listed, and a lot of those are yeah. duplicates. Is that right? So there's 800 models on the roster. I believe only 500 are semi-auto handguns because revolvers are on the roster as well. And then specifically within that 500, there is color variations of the same firearms that make it on there. So the actual list of models, what we would consider a model, you know, I would consider a green Glock 19 the same essentially as a black Glock 19. The list of models that is available is significantly smaller. And I think the first cases that went up and challenged this at the time, there was thousands. And then very shortly after that, it went down to the current ish number of about 800. So they said that because there were plenty of other handguns to choose from, that it was that it was constitutional because we still had the ability in theory to purchase a wide variety of handguns for various purposes. Now the list is getting isn't smaller there, and smaller. And isn't there a provision now that any new gun added to the list, you have to remove three old guns and it's just sort of. Yeah. Like, so let's it's say, just... yeah, let's say someone manages to bring a micro stamped equipped semi-auto handgun to the market. Let's just say they managed to do it. If that makes it onto the roster, three models that are not to the current standard get removed. I'm not aware of the specific process or if the state has a specific process in place for which models get removed. But to me, that doesn't make sense because eventually, you know, I think it would, I think if we did the math, there's about 500. So we would need a third of that. You know, a company could, in theory, produce a firearm that's capable of passing all the tests and has loaded chamber indicators, magazine disconnect, micro stamping. They could produce one gun, make, you know, 120-ish color variations of it, or maybe they just add a slight difference that makes it a different gun on the roster. And then the only handguns that we'd be able to purchase would be some of the revolvers that are still on the list and all of those micro-stamped equipped firearms. Right. But I, I guess it is somewhat moot at this point because, yeah, you, there haven't been new guns added. So yeah. this, this three, <laughs> remove three hasn't gone into effect because they just don't add any. Yeah, um, but uh, and then, I, you know, we've reported in the past on um, in the recent past, actually, on some models being removed from from the list as well over mm -hmm. really completely unclear reasons. Uh, the was H and K yeah. USPs H &K, were removed. Almost all of the H and K USPs were removed. And it's, you know, again, we don't know why. Um, as far as I'm aware, I don't believe it's known specifically, but many people are rumoring. So. Like I said earlier, we can only get Gen 3 Glocks made in America. If something about how they make that firearm changes in any significant way, uh, and it could be very insignificant in my opinion, uh, it's no longer on the roster. We saw this with the Franklin Armory semi or with these Franklin Armory bolt action pistols that made it on the roster. 
they were initially selling them with metal 10 round magazines. At some point there became a supply chain issue and they wanted to sell them with Magpul mags. Well, that meant they had to get that version with Magpul mags on the roster. So it could be very easy to see that with the HKs, maybe they started sourcing some of the springs differently. Maybe they got different parts from a different country or a different supplier. And that would change its roster status, even though the gun is specced identically. If something changes about how they make it or what they source parts or where they source certain parts, it can change whether or not they are approved. Which, yeah, I mean, doesn't make sense, but that's that's the best estimate. That's the best guess we have as why the HKs got removed. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's just all these factors seem to really undermine the whole idea that this list is about. Uh, so, I mean, even even yeah. if you're taking yeah the law at, at face value and, and yeah. assuming it's in good faith, like mm-hmm. most of, there's a lot of things they do to remove guns or exclude them that have nothing to do with safety features. I mean, they you know, have nothing to do with the magazine disconnect or loaded chamber indicator or even the micro stamping. I mean, it's just yeah sort of arbitrary and then obviously they do a lot of things like allow the police to continue to carry these unsafe firearms mm-hmm. and it's just a, it's it's hard to uh you know look at objectively and not come away with the idea that it doesn't have much of anything to do with with yeah. the handgun safety especially if you know if you're trained in firearms uh, you know mm-hmm. i'm a certified instructor and you you're obviously yes. an experienced shooter and the features that they that they want are like not they're not making really them more or less safe and it yeah. it could be very easily argued and i believe in the uh, in the um initial filings they mentioned that the loaded chamber indicator does not make a gun more safe because you can't rely on that it's always the shooter's responsibility to check and right. ensure whether a gun is loaded or not um so and a magazine That's disconnect the thing about any be, manual safety yeah yeah, yeah. you yeah, know you can't rely on the physical safeties and it's you have to kind of take it that they are arguing these in good faith. But when you try to look at it objectively in good faith, it really falls apart with all the things that you said about why they're removing guns, why they're allowing certain people to purchase them, uh, but not others. And then the features that they're requiring it, it's hard to wrap your head around it in their point of view, assuming that they're in good faith, that they're arguing this in good faith. Right. Right. Uh, and speaking of which, why don't we talk a little bit about some of the new gun laws that California has passed in the wake of Bruin? Uh, there's been this response among mm-hmm. uh, deep blue states like California, New York um, and, and elsewhere, which has seen a whole crop of new gun control laws come up uh, in sort of uh, overnight, basically, that uh, do a lot of fairly extreme things that almost feel like uh, an attempt to thumb the nose at, at the Supreme Court. Or, or it's, it's almost like they want to have these laws be challenged and struck yeah. down. I don't really understand it, but I want to talk. Uh, you just give us a little overview of what some of the new laws are now in California. Yeah. So one of them in specific wasn't a response to Bruin, but it's a specific response to Texas. And they made it very clear that it is a response to the Texas law on abortion bans. Mm -hmm. And I believe Firearms Policy Coalition uh, actually was uh, opposed that because they said, hey, 
if this goes through, other states are going to use this to restrict gun rights. And then California did. And in the bill, it's in the penal code now because this law passed. They specifically mentioned that if Texas gets rid of their law, the California law will also disappear. And that's the law allowing private individuals to sue other private individuals or companies that engage in selling assault weapons and ghost guns as defined in the state legislature. Um, yeah, that was so, weird to me though, yeah. um, for a couple of reasons. I mean, uh, Texas did that so that they could avoid uh, pre-enforcement, you know, legal or uh, the judicial blocks. Yeah. Uh, and obviously California's copying that and FPC was right. And we, I, I warned the same thing at the time mm -hmm. that the abortion ban passed, but the idea there was to try and, uh, circumvent any constitutional protections of uh, for abortion that existed at the time. Obviously, things have changed quite a bit yeah. since then. But, but um, you know, they were trying to make something illegal that they couldn't just pass a law to make illegal. Whereas California's mm -hmm. version is on top of they already made yeah. assault weapons. <laughs> you can't, yeah, so it's you can't already illegal anyway. to do those things. Weird. Yeah. Uh, uh, now, but it does include a. There's a provision in there uh, about some legal fees for. Yes. Um, lawsuits against gun laws in California. If you mm -hmm. lose on any point in your suit, actually, this may affect your your yeah. suit that you're involved with. Uh, mm -hmm. The the plaintiffs would then have to pay the government's uh, defendants for their legal fees, even if they mm -hmm. win ultimately the the point that they're trying to yeah. uh, to argue. And uh, are you guys concerned at all about that in practice in this case? Um, it's definitely something to think about. I haven't spoken with the lawyers specifically on the concern for that. Uh, I know the CRPA is big and involved in this, and it's something that they're trying to hush. They're trying to deter people from wanting to challenge anything. And I think that's mm -hmm. very interesting and it's very shady uh, how they're trying to do that. I think that one kind of flew under the radar. I think the first person mm -hmm. I heard about that from was uh, Four Boxes Diner on YouTube. Yes, um, he wrote a piece for us about it. Actually. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's super Mark cool. Mark Smith, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty radical. I mean, I think it's something that uh, is more of a First Amendment issue than, than even a Second yeah. Amendment issue. Obviously, it's, they isolate these legal mm -hmm. fees to Second Amendment cases or gun cases, but yeah, really, it's 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 more of a First Amendment issue. It's similar to when Correct. like Los Angeles and San Francisco tried to bar NRA members from getting city contracts. Like it's related yeah. to guns, but it's really a First Amendment issue. And yeah, they're basically saying you don't have the right to argue against the government, which is right. kind of crazy. <laughs> yes, yeah, so, I mean I'd expect that one to not survive very long. Uh, yeah, in this world, but I guess we'll have to see. And it is something that. Uh, you know, I suppose you guys need to be mindful of. But what else is what else is California doing? Um, yeah. So one of the recent ones was a ban on 3D printed firearms, which was very interesting. Uh, it wasn't that 3D printing firearms was legal in any aspect. Prior to this law recently passing, you would have to go through the state to apply for a serial number, insert a massive chunk of metal into the gun to have the serial number put on, and then you could build it for any firearm that was made out of polymer. They recently... Uh, passed a law banning the use of 3D printing technology to produce a firearm, even if you apply for the serial number and make everything compliant with the assault weapon ban and unsafe handgun ban. Um, so now there is currently no legal route to 3D print a firearm in the state of California, whereas pr before there was. But if you didn't follow the laws, it was already illegal to make them. So they 
only people that they affected was me and a handful of other people that I know of that have legally 3D printed a firearm in the state of California. That was an interesting one. Um, one bill that they're trying to push through is SB 918, which I'm not sure if that law is quite dead yet, but it seems as if it's losing traction. And that bill would essentially make it in practice, almost impossible to carry a gun anywhere in public because it adds a huge list of what would be considered a prohibited place to carry a firearm. And it would add the adjacent sidewalks to many of those places. Some of those places are hospitals, uh, any place that any building that is funded or owned by the government, any park, uh, fitness centers, um, any restaurant that serves alcohol for consumption on the, on the premises. So not just bars where the primary purpose is to sell alcohol. It would be anywhere that serves alcohol at all. So in practice, you would not be able to carry a gun and walk on the sidewalk in most parts of the city. So they couldn't make the entire state a sensitive area uh, per Bruin, but they're going to make it in practice impossible to carry. Yeah. And that's an interesting one. That's another New York copycat thing mm -hmm. where, where it's just like, I guess you're trying to get the Supreme Court to take you back yeah. to school again. Like, it just seems yeah. like I, it's, know, it's a game of I'm asking, not touching you. I'm not touching you. You know, they're asking for it, you know. Yeah, it's it's fascinating, too, because um, I thought that they would end up. It's been, been a bit surprising to me, frankly, because mm -hmm. I thought they'd end up going more the route of D.C., D.C. had a total ban on all gun carry. Uh, there were no permits. You couldn't do it in any form mm -hmm. outside of law enforcement. And then that got struck down as unconstitutional. So they went to uh, a May issue law that was modeled on California and New mm -hmm. York and Maryland. Uh, and then that got struck down as well in, in Renby, D.C. And D.C. decided not to appeal that decision yeah. because they were afraid that they would lose if it got to the Supreme Court. And mm -hmm. they explicitly said this at the time, uh, you know, the attorney general we're seeing here said, you know, we're, we're not going to, we're not going to appeal this because we're worried it'll, we'll lose and it'll set a na nationwide precedent instead of yep. uh, DC has its own federal circuit. So mm -hmm. the rulings there only apply to DC. So they wanted yeah. to contain the damage and they went ahead and passed a shall issue law, which, um, just basically required a lot more training than most laws, a uh, 16-hour class with uh, that's specialized for D.C. that has to be taught by people certified by the police department. And then it, had, it expanded how, uh, how many gun-free zones there were, including permitted events or events that should be permitted, so any large gathering of people, basically. Yeah. And then it, it included a... a special roaming gun-free zone that follows diplomatic anyone under diplomatic protection in the city around anywhere they go. So you're kind of supposed to, I don't know, I guess run away from them in practice. They have to warn <laughs> you, you seem in safe way and you got to run out the back door. <laughs> yeah, basically. That's, but, um, and I figured that was the direction that most, most of these states were going to go after Bruin, but it turns out that they're just going whole hog and saying, yeah, kind of screw you. Mm -hmm. uh, Supreme Court, I'm, we're just going to basically ignore what you said and mm -hmm. pass laws that make it practically impossible. It's pro for people who have permits, it's harder to carry now yeah. than before, Bruno. And I just don't see the Supreme Court letting that stand. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't know. 
I'm really interested to see how the California uh, laws get affected, especially at the Ninth Circuit, because, you know, the Ninth Circuit, they California felt very comfortable appealing to the Ninth and appealing to the Ninth on Bonk mm -hmm. because the Ninth Circuit accepted the means end approach and everything kind of just even if you won at the trial courts, even if you won at the district courts, you know, if it made it to the Ninth Circuit, they were just going to kick it down or say it was constitutional. But now we've seen recently with um, <clears throat> at least Miller and Duncan, they've both uh, been kind of kicked down in various aspects. And I believe Rupp versus Bonta also. So mm -hmm. the Ninth Circuit is basically stalling for time. And yes. I believe one of the judges in the Duncan case specifically said that they are delaying the inevitable, something along those lines. And we've seen cases just get kicked back down to Judge Benitez, who in the past ruled on Miller, the assault weapon ban favorably, and Duncan, the magazine ban favorably. So it's interesting to see that the Ninth Circuit is now just trying to kick it back as far as they can, delaying the inevitable, essentially. So I'm curious if we're going to end up getting things to the ninth and if the state will appeal it to the Supreme Court, if it's favorable for us. Um, obviously, we would love to have national precedents, but I'm very curious to see how that all pans out in the future strategically for the state. Yeah, I think it's going to be very interesting. I think, I mean, again, what I would expect is that mm -hmm. you'd see what you're describing here, which is this tactic of minimization mm -hmm. uh, where, where lower courts that don't agree with Bruin, like, most likely the Ninth Circuit, <laughs> obviously yep. the full court of appeals. Sometimes the panels on the Ninth Circuit uh, yep. go in the program direction. But, but yes, the en banc panel, the full court does, has never struck down yeah. a gun law. So uh, I would expect them to do what you're describing, try to drag these cases yep. out, send them back down. You know, sending it back down to Benitez to rehear is... Uh, Especially when he like, ruled there's no using... Point text history and tradition essentially right. as his rationale it's they know they they are very aware that they're just delaying the inevitable and um, i wouldn't be surprised if you start to see um as applied challenges or you see a lot more of these like well this one provision is unconstitutional you gotta rework yeah. the law to be slightly different and then go through the whole process again that, that's yep that's the most logical approach to this in my mind if you're uh, trying to avoid big rulings but i mean obviously but that's where passing these laws in the first place is is yeah a weird development to me so i don't know what honestly i have no idea what the ninth circuit's going to do maybe they will just be brazen about it and, and say look uh, yeah just gun regulations it. existed this is a gun regulation <laughs> yeah. they're similar yeah uh, you know i don't know yeah, I think I think they're going to be grasping at straws, but I think that they are going to try to find a way to grasp pretty dang hard at those straws. Yeah. But to finish this off, mm -hmm. let's end on a, a maybe a more positive note for California gun owners. Mm -hmm. There have been a few developments of uh, since Bruin that were positive, right? The people are actually getting concealed carry licenses. Is that is that correct? Yeah. Um, you know. Even before Bruin, uh, L.A. County Sheriff's Department, Alex Villanueva, the sheriff, started issuing permits, uh, I believe personally, as a way to get back at the board of directors and the city council. But either way, uh, many people in some of the counties that have been impossible to get CCW permits in light of Bruin have been issuing, which is very cool to see. Um, specifically in Sonoma County, we've been in practice shall issue since 2018. But now we got a new sheriff, which I'm very happy about. Uh, I helped 
get people aware of the campaign and the right guy won. I'm very happy with that. And a lot of people since Bruin have been applying all over the state and asking me for advice. And I've been saying as much advice as I could give them. And a lot of people have been getting concealed carry permits, which is awesome. A lot of people have been much more aware of the fact that in some counties, they, hey, they probably could have had it for the last four or five years. But it's awesome nonetheless to see more and more people choosing to go through the process to have a legal route to carry a gun. Although I will say there's one recent downside to that, which is that the mm -hmm. state uh, and a story that we, we helped break was leaked uh, all of the concealed carry licensees information to uh, the public. Yeah, um, that was uh, that was a fun one, you know, uh, sitting on my phone at 9 p.m. on Reddit and I see, oh, hey, the state put out this cool little website that you can see demographics and how many people have permits, what, you know, like data. I'm like, that's pretty cool. And then I see a comment saying, hey, uh, I kind of figured out a way to download everybody's name and address and driver's license number and all their personal identifying information. And I was like, oh, so I pull up my computer, I look and there's a it 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 wasn't an accident. This feature was built in to be used uh, and the state tried to call it a data breach or a leak or unintentional, but the feature was built and it was put in there to download everybody's information. Thankfully, the information the state had for me was old and I don't live at that address, haven't for a while, but I guess if that's a testament to the quality of government work, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, pretty outrageous leak of information there mm -hmm. uh, or dump of information. Uh, the state has offered people credit monitoring resources yeah. in response to this, but I imagine that's not necessarily nope. satisfactory response in your mind. Yeah, and it's interesting how at the press release when they addressed it and said that they're going to be offering credit monitoring services, they were very specific to say that your social security and banking information was safe. So the biggest parts of what you would be concerned about credit wise were not leaked, but we're going to offer you credit monitoring. I'm more worried about my personal safety and the personal safety of others, specifically law enforcement judges um, and politicians who were included with that, who I believe many of those people are typically never allowed to have their information accessed um, and are considered a protected class in some ways. Mm -hmm. But their information was on there, too. Uh, yep. I had a couple people reach out to me that were DAs who, you know, have ruled on a couple high profile cases or have been involved in some high profile cases with some very violent people. And now their name and address is out there on the Internet. Yeah, it's it's really shocking how much information was given out. And it, did, it wasn't actually just concealed carry permit holders, either. Mm -hmm. A lot of other information from the state's uh, dealer record yep. of service uh, database was also included in this leak. So yeah. wildly irresponsible handling of data on the part of the attorney general and, uh, and others who are responsible for this website, which really was a website, honestly, is uh, they put it out right after Bruin. It was kind of meant to be yeah. a stunt to show you like, yeah. you know, sort of here's all the gun owners in, in California. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, but it wasn't supposed to be here's literally all of them and where they live, <laughs> yeah. which yeah. is what it turned out to be, which is much worse. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, if, if I had a if I had a nickel for every time that the DOJ has leaked my personal information, I'd have two nickels, which isn't a lot, but it's kind of weird. It's happened twice. Um, I was affected with the firearm safety certificate instructor uh, mm. data 
breach that was given out, uh, I think 2016 or 2017, can't remember specifically. Um, so yeah, twice now in my time of owning guns and being involved, I've had my information leaked. It's completely unacceptable and irresponsible on the, the part yep. of the state. Uh, but I yeah. meant to end this on a positive note, but it turned into a negative you know, one. <laughs> honestly, Sorry. there are a lot of great things going on with the progress that's being made in many of the court cases, specifically with Miller versus Becerra, which is being brought up by Firearms Policy Coalition and Duncan v. Uh, or Duncan v. Bonta, which is uh, being brought forward by the CRPA. And I think those challenges on the magazine ban and the assault weapon ban are huge. And I think they're huge for future cases as well, because everybody wants to see the NFA go away, but it's there's strategy to this and we got to kind of show that certain firearms and certain things are protected and have that proven in the courts have precedent so that we can make progress in the future. So I think it's an interesting time to be alive, to be a gun owner. And hopefully, you know, hopefully a decade from now, we come back and look at this conversation and say, wow, look how things have changed. Just like if you look at the CCW issuance maps across the country, things have changed over the last few decades. So I think we're in a positive direction, even though the other side is trying to make it much more negative. I think that's a great point and a great place to end. I do, I do agree with you that in the medium term here, you're very mm -hmm. likely to see a lot of California's restrictive gun laws struck down in court after the Bruin decision, so long as the Supreme Court actually follows up on its Bruin yes. decision, unlike Heller, which took 14 years. <laughs> uh, and so there's there's certainly uh, a lot to, for California gun owners to look forward to down the line, even if things at this exact moment are less bright. But uh, yes, hey, we really appreciate you coming on. Uh, tell people yeah. where they can find more from you. Uh, yeah, you know, my Instagram accounts keep getting deleted. But if you look up Reno May, you'll probably find one of them. Uh, YouTube at Reno May, uh, YouTube.com slash Reno May. Uh, I got a Twitter, uh, Reno May Guns. And ultimately, YouTube is the biggest platform for me. And uh, I'm very happy to have been on this. I've watched your work for a long time now, and this was kind of a, a very cool experience for me. Very happy to do this interview with you. Oh, thank you so much. Hey, maybe I can come on your channel sometime. Uh, yeah. and, and I think we'd love to have you back on the show at some point in the future as well. Maybe when the case gets a little yeah. bit further along and we have some more news to report on it, I'd love to bring you back cool. on. Yeah, thank you, man. All right, ladies and gentlemen, it's time for the weekly news update. Uh, I'm contributing writer Jake Fogelman, joined, of course, with Reload founder Steve Gutowski. How are you this week, Steve? I'm doing all right. Jake, how are you doing? Doing pretty well. Uh, you had a pretty big story to go out today as we're filming. Um, I guess a, a, there's this viral video going around sort of the online gun community about an ATF agent inside of a, a gun store in Arizona. Um, can you give us a little bit of the details about what, what happened? Yeah, certainly. This is uh, an ATF inspector, uh, what they call an, an IOI, an industry operations inspector, and she was performing a review of this Arizona gun store called uh, Black Metal Guns or Black Metal Firearms. Sorry. And during that review, she apparently took pictures of their acquisitions and dispositions book or all of their acquisitions and dis dispositions books. Uh, A&D books for short, which include uh, basically all the guns they've inventoried and uh, and sold and where they were sold to, who bought them, you know, where the person lives, all, all this sort of personal information uh, that is required to be kept 
generally, you know, in in the event of like a, there was a trace, one of the guns they sold ended up in a in a crime at some point. That's how the ATF traces guns. They go back to the dealer. The ATF itself is not allowed to keep uh, firearms records outside of certain exceptions. You know, beyond the like the background checks, they can't keep beyond a you know. A, a, I believe 24 hours might be 48, but either way, they have to destroy those records. They can't, under uh, federal law, keep a digital searchable database of gun sales. So when a crime is a gun is found in a crime, they'll trace the the serial number and they go back to the dealer that sold it and look through their records. And so that's why these these books exist. But um, you know that gives you some insight into why. Uh, taking pictures of them, if you're an inspector on your, and this claim that sh uh, this inspector is doing it on her personal phone, uh, is something concerning to this gun store when they see it happen and they confront her about it. But she um, says she's not creating a database and that she's not uh, going to, you know, stop what she was doing. And so instead they filmed her. And uh, eventually, this actually happened in December. And so um, they waited a little while to release these videos uh, because they were, you know, undergoing this review. Um, and but now I guess they felt that, uh, she, you know, she recommended the revocation of their license, which would, you know, shut down the store. Uh, and so they decided to release these videos now. Um, and yeah, effectively, it shows her taking pictures of their A&D books, which uh, is uh, very questionable at the very least. Right. Under both the you know, federal law and state law doesn't allow the databases. But then there's also um, perhaps a more specific issue of uh, what ATF inspectors are allowed to make copies of during their inspections for the purpose of cataloging or providing evidence for errors that have been made in, right. you know, the bookkeeping process. That's the whole point of these inspections. Um, and so you're only supposed to, according to both the ATF, which I reached out to, and and uh, their handbook on how to conduct in inspections, they say you can only take pictures of, uh, of records that are directly linked to any sort of error that you found. And... Uh, at least the gun store claims that this, you know, she's just taking pictures of everything they had and only cited them for a few errors, uh, none of which included selling guns to, you know, for instance, somebody who's prohibited from owning them. So these are what at least what the gun store's calling, you know, more clerical errors. Right. I was going to say, when you reached out to the gun store, you have it in your piece that it did appear to just be minor clerical errors um, in the fact that someone would be taking pictures of an entire record keeping process of an entire gun store, obviously is going to raise some red flags, particularly in the gun community, who's already a little bit skeptical of, you see this from time to time, where they're very skeptical of ATF claims about not having a registry, because as, as listeners might know, they're prohibited from having a registry of firearms by federal law. But there's always claims that they're somehow doing it by backdoor means. Um, so naturally, in a situation like this, obviously, it's only one gun store, but it's going to raise the hackles of the gun community 
<laughs> who thinks that ATF agents are taking full pictures of an entire record keeping process of gun sales. Yeah. I mean, you can see why people are, would be concerned about that, especially if it's a, uh, if it's a widespread process. Now, the, I guess the, the wrinkle here, right, is that a lot of gun stores today will keep these records in digital form and this store kept them in a paper form. Uh, so, uh, you know, if a gun store is being inspected and has digital records, uh, you know, it might be easier for an agent to make a, a full copy of those uh, than what happened in this case where she had to sit there and take pictures of everything. Uh, but I mean, she, according to the gun store, at least, and look, uh, the ATF said that they don't comment on ongoing inspections or investigations. So we don't really have um, the inspector side of this. They wouldn't they also wouldn't confirm uh, the agent's name that the, the gun store had given uh, us and other media outlets. Uh, but uh, so we don't we don't have the inspector's side of this story. At this point, uh, we have video evidence and we have uh, what the store said and we have the ATFs on record responses, but none of them, uh, the ATF was very vague about it. You know, they said, look, our, uh, effectively, you know, I talked to Eric Longnecker, who's who's there. Um, uh, I believe he's becoming the new um, chief of communications over there because the previous one uh, just moved on to a different job. But Either way, he told us that effectively, you know, the, the ATF's processes for these inspections are public because they were released as part of a uh, Freedom of, of Information Act request back in 2019. That's where we that's why we know that the the guy, the the handbook says you, you can't make just copies of everything. You have they have to be related to a specific um, infraction that you're trying to bring up against an FFL, a federal firearms licensee, a gun dealer. And so it does certainly seem at the very least that the evidence points to this inspector going well beyond what she was allowed to do in terms of copying these records. And obviously there, the tensions between the industry, not just, you know, gun rights activists or gun owners, and the ATF, but also the ATF and the gun industry, which um, tend to have a little bit more of a, uh, at least a cordial working relationship than, you know, perhaps the ATF has with gun rights uh, activists. But that relationship between the industry and the agency are uh, is under strain now. Uh, the president, you know, Joe Biden has implemented a very strict approach towards regulating the industry. Uh, a so-called zero tolerance approach, meaning that a lot more dealers are going to have their licenses revoked under what at least the industry and the dealers consider to be minor infractions, which is what you're seeing, uh, you know, in this case. And then any time. So if that's going to be the approach, you know, the, I think the industry is going to be looking at situations like this where the ATF inspector appears to have violated the ATF's rules um, and maybe even the law, perhaps, where, you know, that's less clear. But uh, and if there's no punishment for the inspector, I think that's going to cause even more consternation between the industry and the agency, which is 
this is an important point too. You know, obviously that's something that gun control advocates, you know, they probably don't mind that so much, right? I mean, that's what they they want. Uh, you know, they've been clamoring that the ATF has been too soft on on gun dealers uh, and manufacturers for a long time, and so they want this more adversarial relationship. But one of the big problems, uh, according to ATF agents that we've spoken to for other stories in the past, is that the ATF gets a lot of its tips from gun dealers uh, about gun trafficking, you know, things that don't look right to them. Uh, somebody maybe making a straw purchase, but they can't prove it, you know, that, that sort of thing. Or, or you know, some bring a, strain, a gun into their store and they get, uh, there's some red flag about why, the, about this person or what they're doing. That's how the ATF gets a lot of tips to uh, run investigations on gun trafficking and, and other sorts of uh, gun crimes. So if the relationship between the industry and the agency is uh, completely torn apart, that's going to actually hurt gun prosecutions and investigations uh, in this country. I mean, I think that's one of the overlooked parts of, of all of this. We, we tend to focus a lot more on the politics of it and, and um, you know, the, the industry and its influence in government or whatever and, and the agency's, uh, you know, attempts to flex its, its regulatory muscles and whatever. But, but one of the key points that gets missed a lot is how the industry actually generates tips for the agency to follow up on um, because most, most of these gun dealers are not trying to sell guns under the table or break any laws. Right. Um, uh, you know, that, and they don't like people who do so, right. but you know, that relationship to some degree is built on trust. You know, if the agent, if, if the ATF is going to be pulling the licenses of every gun dealer comes into contact with, then those gun dealers are going to want as little contact as possible with, with that agency. Right. And that, to me, is, is the biggest wrinkle here in this story, I think, as you pointed out, because traditionally, as you said, the, the industry and gun dealers tend to have a little bit of a better working relationship, at least historically, with the ATF. Um, but there's been a lot of changes at the ATF in recent years. You know, we finally have a new permanent director for the first time in years. Uh, so we don't know how that's going to change the relationship. People in the industry reportedly really liked the previous acting director, Marvin Richardson. I guess there was a good working relationship there. So maybe that's a big change. Um, we don't know if this, the alleged conduct of this inspector was sort of a, a lone incident going, going a little bit rogue off ATF protocols, or if this is just a, a new kind of way that they're training their inspectors to do things. Um, so it'll be interesting to watch how, how this relationship develops going forward. As you said, Biden's made cracking down on these dealers a major priority for the agency. Now that there's a director that he was able to nominate and get confirmed, is that going to be the way that they approach these gun stores going forward? It'll be interesting to see. Yeah. Yeah, that's the big question, right? I mean, I think this this case is uh, really going to be symbolic of, of where things go, how this turns out. If there is there going to be an investigation? ATF said that if um, the licensee reports uh, or complains to the agency, then there'll be an investigation. Uh, we'll, we'll see if they follow through on that. Obviously, they're calling for one. I don't know if they've made a formal complaint uh, or what that process looks like. But, um, you know, they have a lawyer and, and the lawyer, yeah, he raised the same concerns that you did there, which is, you know, how widespread is this practice? Is this 
is this a common thing or is this just and and if it is just that one inspector why is she doing that right and was she you know did someone else uh, you know above her instructor to take that approach uh, we don't know but uh hopefully we'll get those answers soon and you know of course we'll keep watching all of this uh, to see if more of these cases pop up because i think if this is if this is a widespread incident or widespread tactic if it's a new thing that's being you know sent down from above then we'll probably see more of this is is how you'll know and um so we'll we'll certainly keep on top of that uh going forward you know and to just give some clarity here on at least what the we don't have the the report that was written up by the inspectors we we can't know for sure exactly what was all in there what the er errors were and whether they are as minor as the gun store described them to be but uh, the owner, Dave uh, uh, Nagel, told me that effectively they um, had some clerical errors on uh, checking things like, uh, and some of the stuff they didn't seem to agree with the inspector that on, you know, as far as it being a violation. Um, but, uh, you know, things like checking out suppressors or silencers to staff uh, in their records um, or or stuff like uh, selling firearms to people who had active concealed carry licenses, um, but who had presented them the expired license. So the, the person wasn't prohibited. These two sales, they weren't prohibited people, but they had done the sale based off of the wrong license, or at least the outdated license. Um, and so that was, I think, one of the more serious uh, errors that was was involved here. Uh, and, you know, so uh, these things, um, obviously, the store finds, thinks that they're minor, they're small issues that they say they corrected before she even finished writing her report. Um, but uh we don't we don't we don't have the report ourselves so we can't verify that that's all the only issues that were involved uh however they would be in line with this complaint that the atf is going completely zero tolerance meaning if you have any errors uh they'll try to pull your license and they are trying to pull this store's license um, um this inspectors so we'll have to see how that all plays out We'll stay on top of it for sure, and we'll look for other instances of this happening. And if anyone out there has other examples and wants to speak to us, please do reach out. You know, our contact information is on the website on reload.com, which is also where you can go and buy a membership today if you want to get exclusive access to hundreds of pieces of analysis and stories that you can't find anywhere else. And you want to get this podcast a day earlier or have the opportunity to appear on the podcast. Please, if you're a member already, if you've listened this far into the show, consider reaching out and coming on the show. Uh, we love doing our member segments and we'd love to have you on as well. Um, and hey, if you made it this far, you might enjoy this show and consider going and, and rating it on your favorite podcasting app, wherever you're listening to this on uh, or giving it a thumbs up on YouTube or subscribing to us on YouTube. Uh, 
we also put out clips on the show on YouTube if that is of interest to you so you don't have to sit through the entire uh, hour-long episodes. You can see just the highlights. But that's it for this week. We'll be back again next week.